name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. We're going to start our 2022 series with a topic that's become a big talking point in derivatives markets, crypto assets. This sector has seen phenomenal growth in recent years. There are now thousands of cryptocurrencies in circulation, and that number's rising all the time. Market value has also been growing fast, with approximately 80 cryptocurrencies now having a market cap of over $1 billion, according to CoinMarketCap. Little wonder then that this market is increasingly attracting the attention of institutional investors and banks, as well as politicians, regulators and central banks. In this episode, we'll explore how the crypto asset sector might develop from here, and in particular, the steps being taken to further develop a crypto derivatives market as a means for participants to hedge their risk. We'll also talk about what regulators are doing in this space, as well as what role the US Congress might play in the further development of the US crypto market. Our guest for this episode is someone who many people in the derivatives market will already be very familiar with, Mark Weijan, Head of Policy and Regulatory Strategy at cryptocurrency exchange FTX US. Here with me is ISDA's Chief Executive, Scott O'Malia. Now, Scott, you and Mark go back a ways, I understand. That's right, Nick. We both served as commissioners at the CFTC at roughly the same time. I was there between 2009 and 2014, while Mark served between 2011 and 2015, part of which he spent as acting chairman. Mark then moved on to DTCC, where he was head of global policy, before moving on into a more crypto space, first at MyAx Futures and as a board member at LedgerX, and then most recently at FTX US. Now, I'm excited to catch up with my old friend and discuss his professional journey from DTCC right to the tip of the crypto asset spear working for FTX. Well, I'll leave you to get cracking with your questions then. Over to you. Hey, Mark, it's terrific to have you on as our first guest of 2022. Thank you very much for joining us on The Swap. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for inviting me. Now, while I'm very tempted to start this interview with a very long discussion about all the good old days that we had at the CFTC, where we debated and voted on Dodd-Frank and held very interesting hearings on the high-frequency trading and global markets, I'm going to resist that temptation. What I'd like to start with is your interesting career trajectory since leaving the commission. After a distinguished tenure at the CFTC, you took a policy role at DTCC before moving on to uh, MyX Futures and serving on the board of LedgerX, which was acquired by FTX. Now you're the head of policy and regulatory strategy at FTX US. Tell us about that journey from regulator to infrastructure to provider to now global disruptor, if I can be so specific. Yeah, no, I'm happy to share a little bit of my story there. As I was listening, you asked the question, I hadn't really focused on this before, but since I've left the agency, I've always been with infrastructure providers. And that wasn't, frankly, by design. One of the themes of my career is that there hasn't been some grand design to it. It just sort of has happened as it has unfolded. And the only design to it really has been trying to, with the exception of maybe the first few years after graduating from law school. But after that, I've, I've always tried to seek out and join organizations where I thought the work was just going to be really interesting. That's been the primary driver. And so that was true when I was getting ready to leave the CFTC. A lot of the reason that I joined DTCC, I thought at that time they're building a new business because of some of the reform efforts that you and I were involved in. 
So I thought that would be interesting. I also thought it'd be interesting to be a DTCC because they are at the center of the U.S. securities markets, as you know, and one of the largest, if not the largest clearinghouse organizations on the planet. And I thought it would be fascinating to get closer to that and to understand how the clearing business worked in the security space. You and I were familiar with it, having been at the CFTC, but it works a little differently on the security side. There's a lot of overlap or there's a lot of things in common, but not everything. And so honestly, a lot of my thinking was, well, what better way to get a better understanding of that than to be part of the organization? And all the while, when I left the CFTC, I joined LedgerX as a director. And the debates and conversations were heating up around the settlement process and going from T plus three to T plus two, that was an effort that was already underway and basically had been completed, at least on the policy side. And what was left to do was really the implementation side by the firms. But for around that same time, because of blockchain technology and frankly, some of the other pain points that you and I saw at the CFTC and also could see on the security side, was this question of, well, does it make sense to have even a T plus two settlement period? And obviously a lot of market participants were beginning to demand something far shorter than that. And they're doing that for reasons of risk considerations or risk concerns. But, you know, kind of riffing a little bit on this first question, but the settlement cycle is the way it is in the United States because that's where the consensus is today. It's not because of anything else. In other words, it's not because there's some technological issues standing in a way. Instantaneous settlement has been available for DTCC for many, many years at this point. I think that's the interesting bit about your journey is here you are now at FTX, it's simultaneous settlement. It is completely different strategy. Talk to me about your role there. Yeah. So at FTX, well, one thing I would just say, concluding the last answer is everything that I was able to pick up on or learn at DTCC has been highly relevant at FTX and YX, where I was for a little bit between DTCC and FTX. And again, it's just focusing on the back office processes when it comes to the life cycle of a trade. And that's not an area of focus for a lot of the marketplace, whether that be on the policy side or whether that be on the practitioner side. So it's just a useful set of lessons to learn and information to pick up. And like I said, it's been quite relevant here at FTX. I'm also going to guess the boardroom and the board meetings are a little different between DTCC and FTX. Yeah, for sure. But at FTX, you know, my role here is actually quite similar to what it was at DTCC. I have a director's role at FTX. I'm on the derivatives business board, but I also head up the policy and regulatory strategy group. And so there's a lot of similarities between the two experiences there. It's just that the companies. There are some similarities. They have a lot of differences. And so that's been really exciting. And so a lot of what I do now, Scott, is just there's multi facets to what we're trying to do as an organization. And I have a role in the part of trying to build up our policy presence, trying to create a department and an identity as a company where people know that they could come to us for credible, thoughtful information about how policy should be shaped. And I am extraordinarily pleased and proud of Sam Bankman Fried, our founder, who testified in the House at the end of last year, and I thought did a very, very good job. Frankly, a remarkable job when you consider the fact that it was his first foray into testimony and 
hasn't really spent a career around it like you and I did when we went through the process or testified for the first time. So for someone to do that with his background and his age and everything else and to do as well as he did, I thought was really quite extraordinary. And I could tell it resonated and the feedback was very good from both the policymakers, but also beyond just the policymaking community. I think folks in the industry and other observers thought it went really well. And I know we're going to talk maybe later about how the Congress and the policymaking community in the United States has taken a view of crypto these days, but I don't think it was irrelevant that the hearing as a whole went well, and Sam contributed a great deal to that. Yeah, let's get into that. Sam did give kind of the traditional, not traditional, but he you know, used the hearing as a traditional way to, to articulate views of FTX and the vision of both the technology and the opportunity, which I thought was well done. And he's on podcasts that he is everywhere in terms of talking about what the future looks like and is quite articulate and clear. Now, I would note that you recently set out some thoughts on Twitter On the oversight of the crypto market, it appears that most things in crypto are delivered via Twitter. So appropriate place to put out a a very short but concise articulation of your points. And you pointed out there's an increasing openness from Congress on the usefulness of digital and crypto assets. Why do you think that is and how will this develop? And specifically, how important is the role of Congress to be in the further development of the crypto asset market? Well, a couple of things. I think, first of all, More and more people in Congress, and I think, Scott, you and I have seen it on the regulatory side for some amount of time, but I think what we're seeing in Capitol Hill in particular is a little bit more recent, a little bit more new. I think there's just been enough interaction on the part of the Congress as a whole with companies who are in the industry who are good actors. I still think that there are folks on Capitol Hill who are getting exposure to companies that don't necessarily give that impression. But I think, I can't say for sure, but I think on the whole, probably what's happening is more of the interaction with Congress is coming from companies, some of whom, as you mentioned before, are publicly traded at this point, but are viewed to be generally responsible actors. People on an individual basis might take issue with one thing or another with each particular company. But I think there's just a recognition that these are well-heeled, maturing, wannabe responsible companies that are in the space. So that has a lot to do with it. And as an industry, folks on Capitol Hill are interacting more frequently with those sorts of firms. So that's part of it. I think the other reason that we're seeing a shift is in part because of the first point, but also just from their own research, interactions, education efforts, whatever journey they're on, Congress is starting to see more and more some of the benefits that are being delivered by the digital asset industry. And some of the key points like accessibility to financial products, making it easier, more accessible for people to do what they need to do as a consumer, as an investor, as a saver, and do that, even if it's not specifically with crypto assets or through crypto assets, but access to products that are more traditional, but being delivered with tools that are revolutionized perhaps by the crypto industry and other fintechs too. But certainly I think some of the crypto platforms and the way they interface and provide user experiences have been for many organizations very, very positive and and that's carrying over into other businesses. But I think people on the Hill are starting to see that and they're starting to see that that is a potential here that could be useful to their constituents. And this just one point, but there are many others too, I think. 
Would you say it's a bipartisan interest in this and approval of it? I mean, you've talked about access. You've talked about technology innovation. That seems to resonate with two different sides a little bit, but. Yeah, I think it's lopsided still. I think that there's far more openness on the part of Republicans in Washington, D.C. And what I think is more noticeably changing, even in the span of a few months here, is minds seemingly changing on the Democratic side. And I will share with you a private conversation I had with a member of Congress on the Democratic side. And the long and the short of it is this. Again, an understanding, a realization, and an increasing openness to some of the potential and some of the benefits that digital asset companies could provide to Americans and how they can contribute to the American economy. Folks on the Democratic side of the aisle are are starting to get a better understanding of that, or they're starting to take that view. Uh, You're starting to see more members take that view. It's not across the board. I don't want to suggest otherwise, but... We're starting to see more of that. And then the other thing, Scott, is a, is a global competitiveness consideration. I think maybe that's even driving this change of heart, so to speak, on the Democratic side of the aisle, at least among some factions within those caucuses up on Congress. That might be driving it as much as anything. In other words, just putting it very simply, okay, this appears to be here to stay. There's a lot of ingenuity, a lot of wealth creation, a lot of value creation. Let's keep it here in the United States to the extent we can. Let's reap the benefits or the spoils of all of this economic activity. And how do we do that in a way that's responsible? How do we do that in a way that's not harmful to consumers? And I think probably that more than anything could be changing minds. But again, it depends on which individual member of Congress that you're speaking to. I'm sure every one of them has a set of values and interests and goals that are slightly different than the next one, as you know better than anyone. But I would say thematically, that's what I'm picking up on through conversations. And I think you're starting to see it even in the, if you looked at the last House Commerce subcommittee hearing, I wasn't able to watch the whole thing. But if you just read the readout or the summary of the hearing and you look at the D side of the aisle, the comments are plain to see. We can kind of see the potential here, but we're concerned about the energy consumption of -of proof-of-work blockchains. And that's, you mentioned the tweet. That's what I tweeted about. Okay, that's fair game. No issues with that. If you want to talk about whether there's something that from a policy perspective, we need, we meaning the Congress speaking for them, need to be concerned about concerning proof of work blockchain, it's fine. That's fair game. But it's nice to see that that's now being coupled with, we do see that there could be some value here. And we also now understand that there are other types of blockchain networks, by the way. It's not just proof of work. It's also proof of stake networks that are becoming increasingly important. But briefly on that energy topic, it does consume a lot of energy, as you point out, fair game. But if we can revolutionize our transportation sector into electric vehicles and we can make our homes more efficient, our industries more efficient, why can't we make the work that we do around computing more efficient? It just, you know, the vision seems to be there. Let's just see it through and be consistent in our policy goals. Now, Congress is one set of policymakers. There are obviously the regulators that you and I have a fondness for, having served in that capacity. Both actually served in both Congress and not as members, but as staff and as regulators. So in the Twitter thread that I mentioned earlier, you say that there's already considerable oversight of the vast majority of crypto products in the U.S. and argue the question is whether there should be more. And if so, what should that look like? Now, our former colleague at the CFTC, 
Mr. Gary Gensler, who is now the chair of the SEC, has been very vocal about the need for more regulation in crypto markets. What's your perspective on this and Gary's position? And what do you think the answer to some of these questions actually is in terms of regulation? I can't speak for Chairman Gensler, obviously, any better or or more so than you can. But I think you and I understand what he means when he makes that comment. And what he means is that a lot of tokens are, in his view, and he's been very public about this, a lot of tokens are, in his view, meeting the definitions of a security. And if a platform lists such a token for trading on on the platform, then it should be registered as a securities exchange if it's being offered to U.S. persons anyway. Talking about the SEC in the U.S. That's clearly what he means. And frankly, it's hard to argue with that, I think. Some tokens do look an awful lot like a security. Some, in fact, look exactly like a security. But the problem is, and I don't know whether he would acknowledge this or not, I haven't asked him, the problem is there are a bunch of other tokens that don't perfectly meet the definition. And then there's a related policy question as to whether they should or should not be securities, just given why the framework around securities has developed and is there something different enough about a token that means it doesn't make all the sense in the world to have every last token trade and be listed as a security. I think there is enough difference with some of the tokens. And I think there is enough that has changed in our culture and society and economy where not only the wealthiest and best healed investors, i.e. accredited investors, should have access to the best investment opportunities. And I do think that just the disclosure regime in terms of what most Americans really feel like they want or need before they make a decision about what to invest in, I think all those things have evolved. And I think that the policy framework as a consequence should evolve. I don't know whether Gary would agree with that or not, but that's my view. And obviously that means that there's both a role to address these changes, I suppose, or evolutions, whatever you want to call them. There's a role for the SEC and the other agencies to play in that. And there obviously clearly is a role for Congress to play in that too. What would you guys like to see as an outcome to move this along, to give people kind of both the customer protection you mentioned and also have the regulatory certainty that as a company you might need or want to be able to to move your products, to advance your products and develop new products? Here's one way I would answer that question. So a lot of the listeners might already know this is in the testimony from Sam, but we already have four CFTC licenses in the United States. We have licenses in the EU. We have a broker-dealer license from the SEC in the United States. So clearly that signals there's no issue on the part of FTX with being licensed or registered at the federal level of any sovereign jurisdiction. No problem with that at all. The challenge comes when there's a particular business model that you feel is best for the investor and frankly is best for the system from a risk perspective. I'd love to talk a little bit about that, Scott, if we have time, but if the model is better from a risk perspective, is better from an investor protection perspective, is better from an investor user experience perspective, why in the world, from a policy perspective, wouldn't you want to allow that? So that's really the issue, I think, particularly in the United States that we're seeing. And by the way, I think 
the CFTC has already shown a history of being constructive on this particular set of points. And Chairman Gensler, he's signaling that he's willing to be constructive too. And what that means is the letters of the regulations and the business model of a crypto native platform don't fit together perfectly, but there's a way to make them fit by leveraging other authorities that the agencies have. And so long as the agencies are willing to do that, and so long as there's support from enough of the other stakeholders around the agency, then that's the way forward, certainly in the interim, I think. But to be clear, like I said before, no issue with being registered with any national supervisor. That's already the case. I've lost count of how many country or state level licenses that FTX has, but just in the US alone, like I said, we have four CFTC licenses, a broker dealer license with a CFTC designation from FinCEN, 23 United States state licenses, and a process of applying for many, many more state level licenses. So think supervision is important. They're an important stakeholder. The whole community of regulators is an important stakeholder. And so we'll continue to work with them and figure these problems out. One of the issues that gets brought up is the issue of anonymity. And the regulators have talked about that as a big concern of theirs, given your openness to regulation and providing that certainty. How do you solve the anonymity question to their satisfaction and address that? Well, I mean, what do you tell a Congress person when you go see them on the Hill and they bring that up? Again, in a jurisdiction like the United States or even the EU, places in Asia, most places, there's going to be some AML KYC requirement if you're operating an exchange for trading assets. So long as there is, and so long as the company is complying with it, you can't ensure, in fact, you're doing away with anonymity from the get-go. The questions become a little more interesting when you're talking about DeFi platforms and by the way, they have to be DeFi platforms clearly outside the umbrella where KYC ML requirements wouldn't apply, right? And there's a debate there about how many and under what circumstances would you see such a DeFi platform. But in any case, anonymity is just not a hallmark of the experience of any investor who is trading on a centralized crypto exchange. So it's just not something, honestly, Scott, that we spend a lot of time thinking about in terms of a at that philosophical level, it's more on the implementation level. In fact, there's a request for information that the Treasury Department here in the United States sent out. We're working with our uh, policy partners on responding to that, sharing some ideas there. So our concerns really at FTX for the centralized exchanges is more around what are the most sensible ways for the official sector to achieve their objectives, but do that in a way that's efficient and makes sense for the operators as well. Let's turn to the uh, technology itself. Blockchain is not only the foundation for a new and exciting asset class, but it has the power to transform our infrastructure as well. With an immutable trade ledger, blockchain technology can track the entire trade lifecycle from soup to nuts. And this could disrupt the existing system that relies heavily on a series of confirmations and reconciliation services throughout the trade lifecycle. Given that you had a front row seat at this at the DTCC, how do you see the derivative infrastructure evolving and what is the potential transformation blockchain can bring to this? You know, honestly, Scott, I think there's clearly some, let's call it disruptive potential here, but it relates a little bit to the last topic we just covered. And that is when you're dealing with centralized entities 
that are part of the overall market infrastructure, overall ecosystem. And that's from a policy perspective where, at least up until now at FTX, I've spent most of my time. If you just focus on that space, if you will, yeah, there's probably going to be some disruption, but it's hard to know just how much, you know? A lot of it will depend on adoption at the individual firm level. And we're talking about each and every firm that's part of the overall network of companies, intermediaries, infrastructure providers that make up capital and derivatives markets globally. So it feels like it could be disruptive over time, but I'm not sure just how much because there are always going to be pockets of holdouts or people are just not adopters of new technology. And so there's always going to be some tension where the old is going to have to interface and interact and work together with the new. So probably another way of answering the question is, yeah, likely to be somewhat disruptive, but it might be on a longer time horizon than what a lot of people might think. And the other thing I would say, Scott, is that I have not found any ideologues at FTX. Certainly the, the management of FTX is in the business of being disruptive and improving and changing the experience for investors. But I don't see any ideologues as relates to blockchain technology as the only way to achieve that. That's been the primary way to date, but I think there's openness to delivering products using any and all types of technology, so long as it, again, delivers on those primary business goals. Interesting. Now, FTX is a new member to ISDA, and here it is that we're working to develop legal standards, support crypto derivatives with input from a range of stakeholders, including those active in the crypto space, so we're glad to have FTX at the table. We recently published a white paper that explores the key issues, and this will be a key priority for ISDA in 2022. What do you think about this effort to develop that robust legal framework and common standards for derivatives? And do you think it will help broaden that market and deepen market liquidity and facilitate risk management right across both spot and derivative crypto assets? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I fully agree with that. Any place where there's automation requires standardization of terms and fields and definitions and everything else, if you're going to have the best chance for broad adoption. And where there's broad adoption, that's when you can really see new ways of doing things, new technologies, so on and so forth, really take hold and start to really change things for the better. So I think it's a really important effort. You guys have been through this journey before when the swaps markets first started to develop. At this point, decades ago, a sort of a patchwork of bilateral agreements and no standardization whatsoever among firms that were traded in swaps in the early days. And it's only after, there are other reasons too, I know, but only after that standardization came together did the industry really start to grow. And liquidity started to grow as a consequence and people started to use swaps more and more for risk transfer and risk hedging and other investment purposes and on and on. So you can absolutely see the same thing happening here where you have a new asset class that is not terribly standardized. There's some standardization already. You look at the creation of certain types of tokens on certain types of networks. And again, there has to be standardization in that case, but more standardization to help ensure interoperability of networks and the assets on networks. And you combine that with the overlay of sort of a well-defined market, like a derivatives market. 
All those things are going to demand massive amounts of standardization for it to work and grow and increase adoption and so on. Yes, big, really important effort. So look into your crystal ball here. Crypto assets industry has seen massive growth in recent years and some very sky-high valuations, primarily from retail investors. Where do you think the market will be in a couple of years? And do you expect the fundamental shift from where we are now in terms of volumes and participants and products, frankly, and if we're successful in kind of expanding spot trading to more derivative products, where do you see that going? Yeah, if I'm held to a two-year timeline, which I'm happy to do for sake of conversation here, I feel like there's a high likelihood that in that time period, there will be some breakthroughs in the United States, possibly in Europe too, where an agency like the SEC makes it clear that some semblance of the crypto native business model will work within the SEC structure. And that'll unleash, I think, a really interesting amount of growth and demand coming from the institutional side for SEC regulated products. And obviously the most or the best example would be an ETF product. Meanwhile, at the CFTC, I think there's a real hunger for meaningful competition as it relates to crypto derivatives. And as you know, Scott, really the main game in town has been the CME, BTC future and ETH future. I think those are always going to be interesting products. And I think those products would probably continue to grow, especially if there are more ETF issuances on the CME products, because the redemption creation process will create even more volume in the underlying. But I think there's real demand for other competing products from other exchanges. I think people like choice and variety. And I feel reasonably confident that some other platform, and we hope it's FTX among them, is going to be able to issue a competing product that's really interesting to people and then we'll see some really nice growth of liquidity. I think that could easily happen in a two-year time frame. both those things. We'll be watching, obviously very interested to see how this evolves and how derivative markets take off. Now, I'd like to end the podcast by finding out a little bit more about our guests. You've had a pretty varied career so far, starting in the Senate. You were a lawyer out West in Nevada. You came to the Senate, worked for Harry Reid. We were commissioners together. You've had an exciting and interesting trajectory in the private sector, as we've talked about earlier in the show. Is this what you expected when you started out? And what advice would you give to somebody starting their career now? I've got kids coming out of college, what advice are you going to give to my kids in terms of financial services as a future? Your guys are a little younger than our kids, but. <laughs> yeah. So when I was in law school, I got great advice from Judge John Jarvie, who I was interning for, who's a federal judge. And he said, Mark, my career advice to you is just do what's interesting. Just do what's interesting to you. And the only time I didn't follow his advice was the only time in my career where I was not super satisfied or even unhappy. And every time I followed that advice, I had absolutely, not to sound too dramatic, but mind-blowing experiences in terms of how interesting and exciting they were. And he mentioned Harry Reid, who I consider, you know, obviously a, a real mentor and inspirational guy. He's been hugely important in my life. I lost him at the end of last year, unfortunately, after a long battle of cancer. But Working with him, learning from him, seeing how he operated, seeing how he got things done, what a blessing. And 
Yeah, I took that job. In order to take that job, it took a massive pay cut and maybe went through the same experience, Scott, when you joined an office on Capitol Hill. But man, do I not ever regret that because the life lessons that came while working for him were just amazing and not anything I would have ever expected. Back to one of the other parts of your question, I wouldn't have expected that at all. Almost every decision I've made regarding career since then has been directed by that consideration. Is this really going to be super interesting? If the answer is no, then eh, I probably shouldn't do it. It's probably not going to be worth it. The money will come, you know, that's, that's the other piece of this is we all have to make a living and provide for our families. But if you sort of stay true to what you find interesting and marry that up with your skill set, you figure out a way to make a living. Terrific. That's a great place to end. Mark, thank you very much for your insight. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks, Scott. Great to talk to you. Scott, I've got a feeling this won't be the last time we discuss crypto assets this year. First things first, let me ask you about the work ISDA's doing to develop contractual standards for digital asset derivatives. Why is this necessary? Well, I thought Mark made a great point for the simple reason that derivatives on crypto assets are being traded today. Participants typically use their own bespoke documentation or amended versions of the existing ISDA definitions and templates. For example, they'll use equity derivative definitions or potentially NDF definitions. That lack of standardization holds back the industry, potentially holds back trading. So if we can standardize these, we can align the spot and derivative markets and definitions. I think we're going to see more trading, more activity, people being able to manage their risk. And I think probably having a more complete, satisfying experience and be able to trade some of these products that they've wanted to get exposure to. And again, let me mention, manage their risk pretty well. As I mentioned during the discussion, we've worked with a variety of stakeholders, including those in the crypto market, to develop those contractual standards. And we're looking forward to putting them to work and developing broad consensus in the industry. Now, we recently published a paper that sets out that initial thinking, and this topic will be a major focus at our annual general meeting in May. So stay tuned for more information on this. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the AGM, Scott. We just have time to tell everyone that we'll be in Madrid in person on May the 10th to 12th for the 36th AGM. As you said, we'll be talking about crypto assets and crypto derivatives, but we'll also be covering much, much more, including ESG and sustainability-linked derivatives, the move to digital documentation and reporting, and the fast-approaching demise of US dollar LIBOR. We've got some really exciting keynote speakers lined up, which we'll be announcing shortly, so we really hope you come along and take the opportunity to reconnect with colleagues. Registration is now open, so please visit agm.isda.org for more information. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.